You're listening to The Corbett Report. CorbettReport.com Welcome, my friends. Welcome to another edition of The Corbett Report. I am your host, James Corbett, podcasting to you, as always, from the sunny climes of Western Japan on this 8th day of October, 2011. I'd like to welcome all of the listeners to The Corbett Report and invite you all, as always, to check into my website, CorbettReport.com, where you can find previous episodes of this podcast, as well as articles, interviews, and videos I've created and conducted in the past, and links to alternative media information websites like GlobalResearch.ca. And on the note of GlobalResearch.ca, I'd like to bring my listeners' attention to the uh, new video that I've created for Global Research TV at GRTV.ca, Afghanistan, 10 Years of Illegal Occupation, which I think is a particularly important retrospective of the last 10 years of NATO occupation of Afghanistan in the name of catching Osama bin Laden and the ridiculous nature of the pretext for that war. I think it's a particularly hard-hitting and well-put-together report, if I do say so myself, so I hope people do take the time to to take a look at it, because I fear it might get lost in the mix of all the very, very important news that's going on right now. And on a very different note, I'd like to extend a special thank you to one of the listeners, Doug Nadeau of thevergrandisgroup.com, for something that uh, that he sent in to the website, and some of you may have noticed, if you're listening on an iPod or iPhone or another device that displays the artwork that's embedded in the MP3 files that I put up on the Corbett Report, you might have you might have noticed that there is a new logo uh, to accompany the MP3 file, and uh, that certainly was not created by myself, it was created by Doug, and he is a graphic designer, and thevigrandisgroup.com is his website, and he does package design, pet toys, mailers, brochures, logos, print collateral, and basically everything except website development at this time. So I would wholeheartedly invite people to go and take a look at thevigrandisgroup.com if they're interested in graphic design, and I'd like to thank Doug for taking it upon himself completely independently to just create those logos and then to uh, send them to me. So it's greatly appreciated, and as always, uh, whatever listeners can do and whatever specialty you might have or something that you feel you might be able to contribute to the website i'm always grateful to receive and see if i can work that in somehow so thank you very much to doug for taking it upon himself to do that and on that note there is uh, something that i would like to ask some of the listeners out there if if you have the time if you have if you're able i'd like to draw on the listeners to do something that we haven't done in a very long time long time listeners might remember that quite a while ago i wanted to get max kaiser on the program so i enlisted the uh, the listeners out there to all together could go and uh, email Max Kaiser and ask him to appear on the program. And because of your help, um, Max emailed me the next day to say that he wanted to come on the program. So I would once again like to use this tool, which again, I don't want to use too much, only sparingly, but I would very much like to ask the listeners to, uh, to assist me in attempting to get Arnie Gunderson of Fairwinds.com on the program, because Arnie Gunderson really is, I think, one of the best sources of information on the Fukushima crisis, and I've been back and forth with uh, his wife a few times and trying to set up a time to get uh, Arnie on the program, but it hasn't transpired yet, and now I'm not getting responses. I'd really, really like to get Arnie on the program, so if you have the time and if you're able, please follow the link from the documentation section of today's episode to the contact form for Fairwinds, and just spend a moment to fill out a contact just saying that you'd like to hear him on the Corbett Report, and if uh, hopefully if enough listeners do that, they, then the message will be received, and we will get uh, Arnie Gunderson on, because I think it would be a very important conversation to have. So thank you in advance for your help on that front, and for, of course, all of your help in all the different ways that the listeners assist me. Obviously, 
this just manifestly would not be possible without all of you doing everything you do, including, of course, subscribing for 100 Japanese yen a month or purchasing the 2009 Video Archive DVD or doing things like designing logos for me. It is all appreciated and all of your support and tips and feedback and all of that is, is very much appreciated. But today, once again, we have a mountain of information to go through, so let's get straight into today's episode. Welcome, my friends, to episode 203 of The Corbett Report, Philosophy of Freedom, Natural Law. I originally wanted to start today's episode by offering up a concise definition of natural law in order to ground us in the topic for today's episode and get everyone on the same page. But on reflection, I wonder if that's putting the cart before the horse in this case. Because like everything that we take a look at, we have to interrogate not only the terms themselves and what they mean as a totality, but also try to deflect some of the ambiguities that certain terms and words can bring us to. Because if we have association or mental baggage with any of the terms that are used to describe something, that might actually influence the way in which we perceive that thing. That's a rather nuanced philosophical point, which I will not bother to go into in any great depth here because it's a bit beside the point, but I do want to start today's episode by not just defining natural law theory in its entirety, but by dismissing some of the ambiguities that are raised by the very nature of the term natural law. Of course, we have two words that ha carry with them a great amount of baggage, and I think unpacking some of that and getting rid of some of our associations with that should be our first task today. So let's start with the second of those terms, law. Of course, many of us use this term in our everyday conversations, talking about law, the rule of law, a legal system. But what is it we are really referring to when we use the term law? Once again, I think our language can give us clues as to the way that we think or visualize the term law, because we use it with usually with the definite article, the law, as if it was some monolithic thing that has always existed and is unchanging. But, of course, even a moment's reflection will utterly dismiss that, that idea, because law is obviously subject to change at all times, and it changes greatly from society to society, even within a certain time period, let alone from time period to time period. So it should be self-evident that, really, there is no such thing as the law, or if there is, then we are really just stumbling, stumbling along blindly, fumbling our way trying to find the law as we come up with different iterations of laws. So we have something called a rule of law, we have something called a legal system, but it is necessarily something contingent and really varies very, very much from place to place. Of course, I'm a Canadian, I live in Japan, and I have in the past lived in Ireland, so I have some experience in different legal systems with different concepts. And of course, I take a lot of my time examining the American legal system, so America is, is another system which I'm familiar with. And of course, the differences between these systems really give people pause for thought sometimes, because they come from different traditions, they uphold different philosophical ideals, they're grounded on different ideas, so that does pose something of a problem in our increasingly international world of people who are really looking for something universal. Is there anything universal that we can call the law? Is there any sort of grounding for the law that we can all agree upon in order to start constructing a type of society that we, we all can live in and all adhere to the law without any problems? Well, of course, there are a number of assumptions even implicit in that question, which we will unpack later, such as do we really need a system of law per se, or can we actually spontaneously self-organize without the need for a legal system and without the need for 
government-appointed courts and the like. And rest assured, we will be tackling that question later in today's episode. But for now, let's just start interrogating the term legal system. What does it really mean? What does it apply to? What doesn't it apply to? How do we define it? How do we distinguish between legal systems? And really, is there any fundamental underlying basis for us adhering to a rule of law? Do we need a rule of law of any sort? Well, all of these, I think, are very, very fundamental questions. And as I envision this as the first episode in what I imagine will be a series of episodes dealing with different legal systems, and today we're taking a look at natural law theory, uh, I think it would behoove us to start with some some sort of definition for law or legal system. So, of course, it's such an overwhelmingly broad topic, and there are so many points to be made that no particular single clip could ever possibly do it justice, but I'd like to start by taking a listen to a clip from a lecture that was delivered by Dr. Robert George, the McCormick Professor of Jurisprudence at Princeton University. And of course, as always, I would suggest that you be skeptical and uh, and quizzical about everything you hear and from every source and scrutinize the source from which you're hearing it. So, of course, not only scrutinize uh, Dr. George, but also the context of this ch- this talk that we're going to listen to um, a section of, which was delivered at the uh, Thomas Aquinas Center, uh, the Catholic Center at the University of uh, Colorado. And of course, uh, you make of those connections uh, what you will, but I think, as always, we have to encounter information and take it in the context it's presented and really see if there are points that we agree or disagree on based on that, rather than based on the source of where this is coming from, per se. So anyway, I will include the link, of course, to the lecture from which this talk derives, and also to... uh, to the actual transcript of this, uh, this art, the article that this lecture is based on, so that you can go and read along if you're so inclined by going to the documentation section for today's episode. But right now, let's listen to an excerpt from this, uh, this talk by Robert P. George called Reason, Freedom, and the Rule of Law, Their Significance in Western Thought. Uh, the idea of law and the ideal of the rule of law are, of course, central to the Western tradition of thought about public, what Aristotle would call political, the order of the polis order. Uh, St. Thomas Aquinas, the greatest of all the Aristotelians in history, went so far as to declare that, and I quote, it belongs to the very notion of a people, ad rationem populi, that the people's dealings with each other be regulated by just precepts of law. Now, you know, that's a bold claim. It belongs to the very notion of a people. So Aquinas is saying that to be a people doesn't mean you're just living in proximity to each other. Even if you're living in proximity uh, to each other in uh, circumstances of peace or relative peace. No, you're only a people. It begins, it's the very, the, the, the very thing that makes you a people, that enables us as reasoner to figure, reasoners to figure out, even if as sociologists, not as philosophers, to figure out that there's a people there and not just a collection. The, it's, it's essential that the people govern their affairs by law, that they have coordination problems, they solve coordination problems uh, by, uh, by law. And, of course, Aquinas, as a good natural lawyer, says that uh, it's not enough merely to govern our affairs by law. Uh, we must govern them to the extent possible by laws that are just, by, by just laws. And, of course, one of the central questions in the natural law uh, tradition and in the traditions that, uh, that challenge it is just this question of how much the concept of justice enters into the very concept of law or the extent to which there is a conceptual separation between law and justice or law and morality. 
So for all the appeal, the romantic appeal of palm tree justice or Solomonic judging, and despite the sometimes decidedly unromantic qualities of living by preordained legal rules, the Western tradition, at least the natural law strand of the Western tradition, affirms that justice itself requires that people be governed in accordance with principles of legality. Among the core concerns of legal philosophers in the second half of the 20th century and now into the 21st century has been the meaning, uh, the content, the moral significance of the rule of law. And that's true for people who understand themselves as working in the Aristotelian or natural law tradition and those who recognize themselves as working in, say, the tradition of legal positivism. Both see this question of the meaning, content, and significance of the rule of law as quite simple. The renewal of interest in this very ancient question or set of questions has above all, I think, to do with the unprecedented rise and fall of totalitarian regimes. Uh, first, of course, uh, the, uh, the, the Nazi and other fascist regimes in the Second World War and then uh, the collapse of communist util- uh, uh, totalitarianism. Uh, in the aftermath of the defeat of Nazism, some of you will recall from your law school jurisprudence courses, legal philosophers of every stripe tested uh, their legal theories by asking, for example, whether the Nazi regime constituted a legal regime in any meaningful sense. That's a classic post-World War II legal philosophy question. We have these thugs. They seem to have constituted a government, a really bad and wicked one, but a government. They didn't seem to have much respect for the idea of the rule of law at all, do we count that as a legal system? Or were they so gravely unjust in the substance of their policies and in the way that they did business that we would not confer on them the honor of referring to their system as a legal system? Well, you'll remember that uh, great debate, as I say, from your jurisprudence courses. And then in the wake of communism's collapse in Europe, legal scholars and others have sought to understand the role of legal procedures and institutions in creating and sustaining decent democratic regimes. The press question, of course, presents itself again today in the context of nation-building and revolutions in parts of Africa and the Middle East. Now, one of the signal achievements of legal philosophy in the 20th century, the stuff that we studied when we were doing jurisprudence in law school, was Lon L. Fuller's, the late Lon L. Fuller's explication of the content uh, of the rule of law, reflecting on law as what Fuller called a purposive enterprise, the subjecting of human behavior to the governance of rules. Fuller identified eight constitutive elements of legality. These are, number one, the prospectivity or non-retroactivity of the laws. Law, law binds future conduct. It, it, it does not purport to bind things that happened in the past. Number two, the absence of impediments to compliance with the rules by those subject to them. To have law at all, the rules not only have to be prospective, there has, there has to be a reasonable absence of impediments to compliance with rules by those subject to them. After all, if there are major impediments to, any, to people's complying with the rules, then the rules are not going to accomplish what law, good or bad, rulers, good or bad, seek to accomplish when they operate by law, namely the subjecting of human behavior to the governance of rules. Impediments mean can't be done. Number three, 
the promulgation of the rules. If you don't promulgate the rules, people are not going to know what they are, and they're not going to be able to guide their behavior in line with them, whether the rules are substantively good or bad, just or unjust, moral or immoral. Number four, the clarity of the rules. If you make rules so ambiguous that people don't know what they're being directed to do, then obviously the enterprise of subjecting human behavior to the governance of rules isn't going to be the enterprise that's going on in that system. Number five, the coherence of the rules with one another. If you've got an incoherent body of law, even if it meets the other criteria of uh, legality, if they're incoherent, then people are not going to be able to be guided in their conduct by the rules. The rules have to be reasonably constant over time. And all Fuller's interested in here, I think, is not the, he's not obviously not claiming that laws can't change. He's claiming that if you have nothing but flux, if the law is changing all the time, people are simply not going to be able to conform their behavior. So they're not going to know what's going to be expected of them uh, uh, next. Seven, and very importantly, the generality of the application of the rules. Uh, in this, of course, uh, uh, Fuller is very much in line with the whole tradition of uh, legal philosophy, certainly not merely the natural law tradition, even the tradition of legal positivism at its, uh, at its most uh, positivistic, if I, can, if I can use that phrase. For example, the thought of Jeremy Bentham, even Bentham's thought, stress the generality of application of rules is essential to the very idea of law. And then finally, eighth, and equally importantly, the congruence between official action and declared rule. If you want to guide people's behavior by rules, for good or for ill, that's what you're after, that's what you're going to do. If you want law, if you want to rule by law, then you're going to have to have a very high degree of congruence between what officials actually do and what is declared to be the rule. Otherwise, people are not going to be able to know whether obeying the rules, disobeying the rules, will or won't result in the sanctions that are in the hands of the of officials to carry out. So irrespective of whether a legal system or a body of law is good or bad, substantively just or unjust, to the extent that it is truly a legal system, truly a body of law, according to Fuller, it will, to some significant degree, exemplify these eight elements, these criteria, these desiderata of legality. Now, it was a mark of Fuller's sophistication, in my view, that he noticed that the rule of law is a matter of degree. I threw some emphasis on that phrase of his, to the extent that. It's not treating the rule of law as an either-or proposition. It's a matter of degree. Its constitutive elements are exemplified to a greater or lesser extent by actual legal systems or bodies of law. Legal systems exemplify the rule of law to the extent that the rules constituting them are prospective, susceptible of being complied with, promulgated, clear, general, and so forth. Now, even Fuller's critics recognize his achievement in explicating the rule of law. What they objected to was Fuller's claims, or in any event, what they took to be Fuller's claims on its behalf. Provocatively, Fuller asserted that, taken together, these elements of the rule of law, though in themselves merely procedural, nevertheless constitute what he insisted on calling an internal morality of law. And those of you who studied Fuller's work in, uh, in law school will remember that the title of his great work, uh, the title of the work that engaged, uh, ended up engaging him in the great debate with Herbert Hart, was The Morality of Law. 
and the thesis is that law has an internal morality. Moreover, Fuller explicitly presented his account of the rule of law as a challenge to the dominant legal positivism of his time. According to Fuller, once we recognize that law, precisely as such, has an internal morality, it becomes clear that the conceptual separation of law and morality, which forms the core of the positivist understanding of law, legal obligation, and the practical functioning of legal institutions, cannot be maintained. So he's, he's launching a, a, a wholesale attack now on legal positivism as such, which he understands as the view that there's a strong conceptual separation of law and morality, based on a rather weak and uncontroversial set of premises, premises that weren't in themselves challenged by even his most severe critics. That is, that for law to be law, for rules to constitute a legal system or a body of law, uh, certain procedural criteria need to be met. But Fuller's claims, as many of you will recall, drew sharp criticism from, among others, but probably preeminently, Herbert Hart, the Oxford legal philosopher whose magisterial 1961 book, The Concept of Law, both substantively revived and, and revised, by the way, and dramatically revitalized the positivist tradition in analytical jurisprudence. In a now famous essay in the Harvard Law Review, Hart accused Fuller of, in effect, engaging in a semantic sleight of hand. According to Hart, there isn't the slightest reason in the world to suppose that the constitutive elements of the rule of law or of legality, which Fuller correctly, according to Hart, and very usefully identified, should be accounted as a morality at all. Hart's claim is just, just arbitrary that you're calling this a morality. You're shifting from the non-moral, purely procedural criteria to a claim about morality just by way of a sleight of hand. There's nothing about the criteria that constitute the rule of law that is in any sense uh, moral or moralized. As Fuller himself, after all, seemed to concede, just, unjust, unjust, or otherwise morally bad law can exemplify the procedural elements of legality just as just law can exemplify those. But if that's true, then according to Hart, it's worse than merely tendentious. It's false to claim that these elements constitute an internal morality of law, an internal morality of any kind. Indeed, Fuller's critics have observed that even the most wicked rulers, Nazis, <laughs> today we might say Paul Pine, sometimes have purely self-interested reasons to put into place and operate to some extent, and even perhaps in some cases, strictly in accordance with legal procedures. Yet even the strictest adherence to the forms of legality cannot ensure that the laws that these rulers enact and enforce will be substantively just or even minimally decent. Even if we set the standard pretty low, someone could, Hart says, rulers can, Observe all eight criteria of the rule of law and not meet the standard, not even minimal decency. Well, I would suggest that you go and listen to the rest of that lecture by Dr. George as he goes more into the debate between Hart and Fuller and others about the, whether there is really an underlying moral and ethical basis for rule of law and all of the different implications of that debate. And it is quite an interesting one, and I think one that we have to engage with it to a certain extent. But again, I'll let you go and listen to the rest of that on your own. But there are a couple of parts of that lecture that I'd like to highlight. 
Firstly, I'd like to reiterate this point because I think it's very important. Quote, Indeed, Fuller's critics have observed that even the most wicked rulers sometimes have purely self-interested reasons to put into place and operate strictly in accordance with legal procedures. Yet even the strictest adherence to the forms of legality cannot ensure that the laws they enact and enforce will be substantively just or even minimally decent. End quote. And I think it's important for us to cogitate on the real meaning of that quotation, because I, I do think there is some, some definite truth there, which is basically saying that just because something is a rule of law and does constitute a self-internally uh, consistent system of legal c- codes and prescriptions does not by any means ensure that it is a moral system or that the people who are even operating within those, those norms and within those rules are in any way acting morally, as has been proven by many. horrific dictatorships which have come to power very much largely through the rule of law and procedural uh, legal conduct, such as the Nazi regime. So that's something definitely worth pondering when we start thinking about the rule of law and whether it is something inherently just and something that we at all times must necessarily abide by. And I think the answer must necessarily be no. But I think the other extremely important part of that lecture is describing some of the the eight points, as you'll recall, that Lon L. Fuller described as being the content of the rule of law or describing a an element of legality. And it's very interesting. Once again, those points were one, the prospectivity or non-retroactivity of legal rules. Two, the absence of impediments to compliance with the rules by those subject to them. Three, the promulgation of the rules. Four, their clarity. Five, their coherence with one another. Six, their constancy over time. Seven, their generality of application. And eight, the congruence between official action and declared rule, end quote. Well, I think we can fruitfully use that definition to actually highlight how some of the things that we are told is part of the rule of law in our day and age, in our society, is not necessarily so when you actually really begin to scrutinize it. And just as an example for my American brethren in the audience out there, you might uh, you might actually think of your own tax code and inquire how many of these elements of legality really apply to the tax code. For example... How about the the very first part of that uh, definition, the prospectivity or non-retroactivity of legal rules? Does that apply to the American tax code? Back in uh, in the late 80s, I was a pretty big silver trader and gold trader. And uh, I don't think I've ever told this story on tape before. Uh, I was a pretty big silver and gold trader. And um, the uh, I took, and I always paid my taxes, and I took what was a legal tax deduction on my silver trades. And uh, a few years later, I think it was 88 or 89 or something, the uh, IRS claimed that what I did, and other people did as well, was now illegal. We couldn't do it anymore. But they made it retroactive. I said, what do you mean retroactive? It was legal then. We did, I did what was legal. He said, yeah, but it's now we're making it illegal retroactively. And you, it's, that's not good. So you owe us six hundred dollars or $800,000. For what? It was legal. How could you make something retroactive? Change the law backwards in time. It makes no sense. Well, we're doing it. And so everybody said they can't do that. So we went to court, a class action lawsuit. And the judge agreed with the IRS and said they could do it retroactively. And that's when I knew that there was something wrong in America with the IRS and the system here. 
Hmm, I see. Well, how about the clarity of the rules? Can I just follow up on that point? Do you file your own taxes or do you use a preparer? I use a preparer. Why? Uh, I've used one for years. Um, I find it convenient uh, and I find the tax code complex, so I, I use a, a preparer. So how would you make it easier? For you or others, how would you make the tax code less complex? You know, I don't write the tax laws. Uh, Congress writes the tax laws, so um, it's a whole, a whole different discussion. I see. Generality of application? Now, how would it make you feel to find out that the largest corporation in America pays no income tax? Thanks to an expose in the New York Times today, we now know that it's true. GE, or General Electric, reported $5.1 billion in profits from business done within the U.S. last year. But they paid zero income tax and, in fact, claim a tax benefit of $3.2 billion. It's just another example of corporate tax evasion, joining the ranks of Bank of America and ExxonMobil. And we can only guess how many other companies out there are doing the same. And it's all done through various strategies, including lobbying. GE has spent more than $200 million in the last 10 years lobbying on tax reform. GE has also expanded its business abroad, cutting one-fifth of its workforce within the U.S. since 2002 and placing their profits made here at home into offshore accounts. And they also hire the best of the best, including former IRS and Treasury officials, for accounting purposes. So I'd say that it's pretty clear that our system needs reform. No, no generality of application. Well, then how about the congruence between official action and declared rule? Hey, Mr. Guyton, how are you? Excellent. As uh, someone who refused to pay taxes while at the New York Fed, what moral authority do you have to advocate for raising the taxes in any income bracket? Sir? Thank you. All right, then. Well, it looks like the American tax code fails on just about every single element of legality as defined by Lon Fuller there. So it um, it goes to prove the point that just because things are enforced by a legal system of some sort and people wearing funny hats claiming to be officers who can enforce these laws does not necessarily make this part of a real uh, coherent body of laws, does not really make it a rule of law that, that needs to be obeyed. So again, that brings us back down to the, the core level of what we're interrogating today. Well, what is a coherent theory of law, and, and is there anything that really compels us to follow any particular theory of law? Or is law itself something that is a part of the natural realm? Well, that's, that's a very important question and something that we must begin to plumb today. And there are many different ways to take this, but I think one of the things that we must confront up front is the fact that as people begin to do their own particular research on this, this vast, broad topic that, of course, we will only be able to skim the surface of in today's episode. And as always, I do hope that you will go and start doing your own research if you have not already done so on this topic. But as you do so, I'm sure you'll start to encounter that a lot of the sources that are available on this topic, at least in this current online age, tend to be either from A, religious sources, or B, libertarian sources. And I think there is, uh, well, there's obviously some reason for that, and uh, they will become apparent, I think, during the course of today's episode, but it will obviously give a lot of people pause for thought and even prevent some people from even taking a look at some of this information, because they will obviously have their own associations with all of the baggage surrounding the, the various uh, sources of this information, and thus will be prevented from looking at it at all, which I find particularly tragic, because I think there, there might be some misconceptions going on here about what is really meant. And in order to dispel those amb ambiguities, we'll have to come to the other part of the term. Of course, we've just taken a look at law and what that really means. 
Well, let's take a look at the term natural, because there are, again, a lot of different ways that we can think of that word. And I think probably the first thing that most people would think about when they hear the term natural law is to think of the laws of science, like the law of gravity. Of course, that is certainly not what is meant in this particular sense of the term natural, and we're not talking about those types of natural laws today. Nor are we necessarily talking about the law of the jungle, which I think most people might think of when they hear about natural law. That's not necessarily it either. We're not necessarily building on that previous topic that we listened to in in the former uh, Philosophy of Freedom episode on the state of nature. It's not necessarily the the state of uh, nature's legal system that we're concerned with here. It's something a little bit different. So in order to start dispelling some of the the, um, mental and um, emotional and intellectual baggage of the term natural, let's listen to a very intriguing clip that is, in fact, excerpted from a book by Murray N. Rothbard, one of the famous thinkers of the libertarian in philosophy. And this is provided by lourockwell.com and the Mises Institute. So of course, I'll send links, uh, I'll give links in the documentation section for today's episode, not only to the text of this uh, particular excerpt from the Murray Rothbard book, The Ethics of Liberty, but also to the MP3 audio of the audio book from which this is this clip is derived. And I would suggest people do go and start taking a look at this, because again, it's a very fascinating topic. So, so let's get straight into this excerpt from The Ethics of Liberty by Murray Rothbard. Part 1. Introduction. Natural Law. Chapter 1. Natural Law and Reason. Among intellectuals who consider themselves scientific, The phrase, the nature of man, is apt to have the effect of a red flag on a bull. Man has no nature, is the modern rallying cry, and typical of the sentiment of political philosophers today was the assertion of a distinguished political theorist some years ago, before a meeting of the American Political Science Association, that man's nature is a purely theological concept that must be dismissed from any scientific discussion. In the controversy over man's nature, and over the broader and more controversial concept of natural law, both sides have repeatedly proclaimed that natural law and theology are inextricably intertwined. As a result, many champions of natural law, in scientific or philosophic circles, have gravely weakened their case by implying that rational philosophical methods alone cannot establish such a law that theological faith is necessary to maintain the concept. On the other hand, the opponents of natural law have gleefully agreed, since faith in the supernatural is deemed necessary to believe in natural law, the latter concept must be tossed out of scientific secular discourse, and be consigned to the arcane sphere of the divine studies. In consequence, the idea of a natural law founded on reason and rational inquiry has been virtually lost. The believer in a rationally established natural law must then face the hostility of both camps, the one group sensing in this position an antagonism toward religion, and the other group suspecting that God and mysticism are being slipped in by the back door. To the first group it must be said that they are reflecting an extreme Augustinian position, which held that faith, rather than reason, was the only legitimate tool for investigating man's nature and man's proper ends. 
In short, in this fideist tradition, theology had completely displaced philosophy. The Thomist tradition, on the contrary, was precisely the opposite, vindicating the independence of philosophy from theology and proclaiming the ability of man's reason to understand and arrive at the laws, physical and ethical, of the natural order. If belief in a systematic order of natural laws open to discovery by man's reason is per se anti-religious, then anti-religious also were St. Thomas and the later scholastics, as well as the devout Protestant jurist Hugo Grotius. The statement that there is an order of natural law, in short, leaves open the problem of whether or not God has created that order, and the assertion of the viability of man's reason to discover the natural order leaves open the question of whether or not that reason was given to man by God. The assertion of an order of natural laws discoverable by reason is by itself neither pro- nor anti-religious. All right, well, hopefully that wedge issue has been dispensed with, because once again, the religious question often does become a wedge issue that drives people apart on issues that they should not be driven apart on, and in fact, which they might have everything in common, but just the uh, the language or the rhetoric or some of the uh, the base-level uh, background might d- distract people from the a- what the theory is actually saying. So, once again, natural law theory can be religious if you are religious. It can be a-religious if you are a-religious. It can even be atheist if you are atheist. It can be anything you want it to be. It's just a question of figuring out what this natural order of the universe, wherever that order derives from, actually tells us about the way that we should structure our legal system to be in conformity with those laws, and whether we can really reason those laws out. So let's arrive really at the beginning of the podcast, and let's let's now actually delve into a positive definition of what natural law actually is. And for that definition, we're going to turn to the Stanford Encyclopedia of Philosophy, of all places, and an article that they have on the natural law tradition in ethics. And of course, I don't suggest that you take Stanford's uh, word on this. I think you should obviously do your own research, and but you can certainly use this as a starting point and start to e- explore some of the source material that they cite in this article. But for right now, let's just take their summary, and they have this under point 1.4 of the article, Paradigmatic and Non-Paradigmatic Natural Law Theories. Quote, To summarize, the paradigmatic natural law view holds that, one, the natural law is given by God, Two, it is naturally authoritative over all human beings. And three, it is naturally knowable by all human beings. Further, it holds that four, the good is prior to the right. That five, right action is action that responds non-defectively to the good. That six, there are a variety of ways in which action can be defective with respect to the good. And that seven, some of these ways can be captured and formulated as general rules. End quote. Now, that's a rather dense philosophical definition, and there are some axioms in there which I think you will have to really go and read. If you're like me and are a visual learner, you'll probably have to read those a few times to really get the grasp the sense of what is being said there. And I hope you will, of course, by following the link in the documentation section. And once you've done so, well, let's start proceeding from some of those axioms and starting interrogating some of those propositions, because some of them are really, they they might seem rather uh, mundane on the surface, but are actually quite intellectually revolutionary in some senses, quite, quite 
contentious statements. So let's start taking a look at the ways that some of these paradigmatic views of natural law theory have been propounded by various people. And I think the one person that most people uh, will think of in this regard, at least in in terms of Corbett Report listeners, is uh, Thomas Jefferson in the Declaration of Independence. Because as we know from previous episodes of this podcast, Jefferson was, uh, shall we say, quite influenced by and uh, liberally borrowed from John Locke, who was very much situated in this natural law theory tradition. So, for example, when Thomas Jefferson writes, quote, When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them with another, and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitled them, a decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to the separation. End quote. Well, of course, you will pick up on the laws of nature and of nature's God, which Jefferson inserts in there, obviously bringing this into some sort of natural law paradigm, that there are certain laws of nature which entitle them to certain things. Well, that's interesting. Let's continue a little bit with Jefferson's writing. Quote, We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, end quote. And of course, the original and probably, well, less famous, but probably more to the point formulation was life, liberty, and property. But make of that what you will. At any rate, I think the truly interesting, truly revolutionary con- uh, word and really operant word in that sentence is self-evident. Think about that for a second. It is self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. It is self-evident. What does that mean? It means that this is something that is known a priori. We do not need any explication of this fact. It is an axiom, a bedrock upon which we can rest all of the rest that is about to come. It is self-evident. There is no explanation needed. That is a pretty revolutionary statement in terms of uh, just the, uh, the ontological and epistemological consequences of that statement. So let's start parsing through that because Obviously, it's not necessarily self-evident to you or I situated in our current uh, political and historical context that certain things like that are self-evident. So let's start thinking about how the Enlightenment-era thinkers like Locke, from whom Jefferson derived that notion, were thinking about these things. And we're thinking that there were certain a priori fundamental things that we can discern just from the nature of the universe about the way that we should be structuring our society to guarantee our unalienable or unalienable rights. Very interesting stuff. So let's turn to a very interesting lecture expounding on that subject. Now, with our previous proviso about always being mindful of who is telling the information and in what context, let's turn to a lecture by Ian Shapiro of Yale, who gave a lecture in a political philosophy course called Natural Law Roots of the Social Contract Tradition. And in this particular part of this particular lecture, Professor Shapiro is talking about the roots of this idea that is taken up by Locke and others, that there are certain a priori self-evident truths about natural law that we can derive simply from thinking about them. And as I said in my introductory lecture, the Enlightenment really involves a twin commitment as far as politics is concerned. And that is to 
first and foremost a commitment to science as the basis for theorizing about politics. A commitment to science rather than a commitment to tradition or religion or uh, revelation or um, anything else. Um, rather, the idea was that, the, that science um, is going to provide the right answers for thinking about the correct political organization of society. And secondly, the, the core political value for Enlightenment thinkers is this notion of individual freedom to be operationalized or realized through a doctrine of the rights of the individual. We'll see uh, shortly that one of the distinctive moves of the 17th century writers about politics is that they stop talking so much about natural law and start instead to talk about natural rights. The rights of the individual to realize their purposes through politics. And so the Enlightenment, as I said, revolves around this twin commitment to the idea of importance of science as the basis for theorizing and the importance of individual freedoms realized through a doctrine of individual rights. And we're going to use John Locke as a window into this early Enlightenment thinking, separately initially from his role as one of the early social contract theorists that we'll be dealing with in a few weeks. Um, but first, we're going to focus on this idea of science. Now, let's think about what science is, what it's all about. I have three diagnostic questions here. And the reason I put them up will become plain in a second. It has to do with the fact that the early Enlightenment theorists, the 17th century theorists, thought that the hallmark of genuine knowledge, the hallmark of science, was certainty. You might all have uh, come across in one philosophy course or another the famous Cartesian idea, Descartes' idea. Does anybody, anyone read Descartes who can tell us what he's most famous for? Systematic doubt. You're dead right. Why, why, did, why was he interested in doubting things? Anybody? Yeah. He was looking for what you can truly be certain about. Exactly. He was looking for absolute certainty. That the hallmark of genuine knowledge is certainty. So he's asking himself, what is it that we can have certainty about? And as you probably know, Descartes had his own answer to that question. What was it? I think, therefore, I am. Correct. I'm a Yale, therefore, I am. Right? Yeah, I think, therefore, I am. And he thought, he, Descartes, thought this was, an, this was a particular kind of proposition because the very act of trying to doubt it affirmed it. You couldn't, you couldn't doubt it, you know. And so that was what the early Enlightenment theorists were looking for. What is it that makes knowledge certain, puts it beyond doubt? And so I've got up here three propositions. And we, we could say the sum of the interior angles of a triangle equals 180 degrees. How many people think that that proposition can be known with certainty? 
Yeah, a lot. I mean, how would you try and doubt it? You know, you could measure one triangle, measure the next triangle, measure a third. You know, after you'd measured 5,604 triangles, you'd start to say, hmm, maybe there's a theorem here. Maybe there's, you know, it's not as if the, the, the next triangle I find is going to turn out not to add up to 108. It's just not going to happen, right? We know. And that's what we've come to refer to in modern philosophical thinking as a priori knowledge. It follows from the nature of the definitions, um, the nature of the terms, that the, the propositional force can't be doubted. So if we say a bachelor is an unmarried man, you know, you're not going to go and start looking at bachelor after bachelor to see if you can find a married bachelor. There's no such thing as a married bachelor. So those propositions we tend to think of today as analytic propositions, they follow analytically from the definitions of the terms uh, at issue. Or in uh, truths of mathematics, it seems there's a theorem that tells you it must be the case that the sum of the interior angles of a triangle add up to 180 degrees. When we say, come to what I've numbered two here, how many people think that that can be known with certainty? Some of you do. Anyone not so sure? Why, why are you unsure? Where's the microphone? What's the source of your, your, your doubt? Well, it seems like um, in terms of geology, we weren't, we weren't able to penetrate what was underneath the Earth for a long period of time, and the knowledge of tectonic plates even was a new or more modern um, discovery, I guess. Right, so I think that's exactly right. The current best empirical understanding of earthquakes is that it's the movement of tectonic plates. But we might, you know, science might advance. There might be changes in geology, uh, which, would, which might lead us eventually to learn, well, yes, some earthquakes result from tectonic plate movement, but other earthquakes might result from something else. Or we will learn that something moves the tectonic plates that we don't currently know about. This is an ongoing process of empirical discovery, right? It's, it's, not, the, it's not a proposition that follows from the nature of the terms. And these we call empirical propositions in, mo in modern philosophy of science. Um, sometimes they're called, if you like, the fancy uh, Latin terminology, a posteriori as opposed to a priori. They're not analytical propositions, right? They, they're, they're a result of observation and trying to figure out uh, what the causes are behind those phenomena. So generally speaking, they don't have the same kind of force as analytic propositions. What about this third one? Consent is the basis for political legitimacy. Anyone think that can be known with certainty? Nobody. I think that's right. Most people would say, well, that's a, a moral or uh, normative judgment of some kind. Maybe people agree with it. Maybe they don't. But certainly it's not a scientific proposition at least not obviously a scientific proposition. Indeed, even if, we, you know, even if we took it just in a descriptive sense, not to mean consent should be the basis of political legitimacy, but as a descriptive matter about regimes, some people would say, well, maybe regimes are based on consent, but maybe some regimes are based on other things. Maybe they're based on claims 
to divine authority. Maybe they're based on utilitarianism. We're going to talk about that next week. So it seems even as a descriptive matter, never mind as a normative matter, this is not a scientific proposition in the way that uh, causal statements about the world are scientific propositions, and certainly not in the way that analytical statements about the world can have scientific certainty. So we could spend more time on this, and there are indeed nuances in modern conceptions of science that I haven't gotten to that would paint a more complex picture of the differences among these three propositions. But what I want to draw your attention to now is that in the early Enlightenment, 17th century thinkers about the nature of science, Descartes and his um, contemporaries thought very differently about science. Indeed, in the early Enlightenment, they would have agreed that the sum of interior angles of a triangle equals 180 degrees is a proposition that can be known with certainty. But interestingly, they would have put this claim about consent in the same category with propositions about mathematics, propositions behind which there's a theorem, as we just said when we're talking about triangles. And they would have relegated empirical and causal claims to an inferior status. Now, you might think that is pretty weird. At least, prima facie, that seems pretty weird. And in order to get your mind into the world in which they lived, you have to suspend disbelief for a moment about your concept of science and try to get your mind around early Enlightenment conceptions of science, which involved thinking very differently. And the reason is that early Enlightenment thinkers wouldn't say that this is certain because of the meanings of the words, but rather it's certain because there's an act of will behind it. Now, this may sound even weirder than anything I've said so far, but consider, consider this passage here written by Thomas Hobbes, who is writing in the middle of the 17th century in his in a minor piece that he wrote, The Six Lessons for the Professors of Mathematics. This is not one of Hobbes' major works, but I think it's, it's one of the most succinct descriptions I've ever seen of the early Enlightenment conception of science. He says, of the arts, which for him is a general uh, term to capture knowledge, he says, some are demonstrable, others are indemonstrable. And demonstrable are those, the construction of whereof the subject the construction of the subject whereof is in the power of the artist himself, who, in his demonstration, does no more but to deduce the consequences of his own operation. The, we, the reason whereof is this, that the science of every subject is derived from a precognition of the causes, generation, and construction of the same. And consequently, where the causes are known, there is place for demonstration but not where the causes are to seek for. Geometry, therefore, is demonstrable, for the lines and figures from which we reason are drawn and described by ourselves. We make the triangle. 
Okay? And civil philosophy is demonstrable because we make the commonwealth ourselves. Okay, so this is the key to this, what seems like a very weird conception of political philosophy as equivalent to um, mathematics. Civil philosophy is demonstrable because we make the commonwealth ourselves, but of natural bodies, we know not the construction, but seek it from the effects. There lies no demonstration of what the causes be we seek for, but only what they may be. Only what they may be. There's not going to be certainty about earthquakes, about the causes of earthquakes. We can make probabilistic judgments, we can make empirical claims, but at the end of the day, those claims are fallible, they're corrigible, they might have to be revised in the face of future knowledge, and science is not going to ever reach to the level of certainty with propositions of that sort. And so this is why, going back to this, I did this ordering of these three propositions on on a Hobbesian view. These two are equivalent, not because of anything about theorems or analytics, but rather because this will-centeredness, they're the products of of human conscious action. We make the triangle and we make the commonwealth. And so we have privileged access into the, what goes into that making. But we, we don't make the planet. God made the planet. And we can only observe the effects of earthquakes and then try and guess about their causes. Right? Hmm, very intriguing. So, simply from knowing certain things about human nature by virtue of being a human and thinking about our interactions in the world, we can come, even within our own understanding, to a sense of certainty about our place in the world and about what certain rights we have and then how to structure a legal system around those rights that enshrines and protects those rights. A very interesting concept, and it certainly begs the question, well, if all of this is knowable and self-evident to all, then what is the place for having a a state or government come in and intervene in this system of of laws and rights and to do anything to infringe or uh, obscure or to muddy the waters, so to speak, in this regard? And some would argue there is no place whatsoever. And in that regard, let's turn to, well, a very interesting lecture on this very topic from Hans Hermann Hoppe an Austrian school economist and anarcho-capitalist philosopher who is Professor Emeritus of Economics at UNLV, and he has uh, given numerous speeches and written numerous articles for the Ludwig von Mises Institute. And we're going to listen to a bit of a lecture that he gave on state or private law society. I think this is a very intriguing lecture in a lot of ways, and I don't necessarily agree with all of them, but certainly I think it's worth delving into these ideas. So let's get straight into it. How do, how would a society, a private law society, produce law and order? Uh, How would they make sure that people adhere to the rules that I mentioned at the outset? How do they deal with lawbreakers? First, very briefly, of course, in such a society, self-defense would be permitted. Um, And it should be emphasized that self-defense 
can be quite effective when it comes to combating um, <coughs> crime and dealing with criminals. Um, we know that in the so-called Wild West, for instance, when practically no state existed in the United States and defense was more or less private defense, people were heavily armed um, and the Wild West was not very wild. Um, imagine, for instance, if you have a society where people have arms and you engage in a bank robbery, um, how likely is it that you will come out alive out of a bank robbery in a bank where every bank um, uh, employee is armed? And the answer is you will not likely survive a bank robbery successful. Um, you will be shut down before you enter, uh, before you leave, uh, leave the premises. Several studies, many studies have been done on this. That is a general consensus that violence was quite mild um, or concerned only willing participants. Obviously, if you have willing participants in crime, then it is not a crime. Uh, if uh, Mike Tyson beats up uh, Mr. Holyfield or vice versa, uh, we would not consider this to be crime. Those are willing participants in violent activities. Um, but as I said, self-defense is important, but it is, of course, only a minor aspect of what I want to talk about. Just as we don't um, produce our own suits or shoes, uh, not even our own hair do, but rely on the advantages of division of labor uh, in the provision of services such as this. We would, of course, also rely on the advantages of division of labor when it comes to the production of law and order. And what sort of organizations would likely come about in the market to offer services um, of protecting life and property, be private police forces, uh, private arbitration agencies and uh, private uh, insurance agencies. They might be sometimes working together, sometimes competing against each other. Uh, we don't have to be concerned about the particular um, makeup and uh, construction of these uh, agencies. Now, what would be the consequence if we had privately organized, privately fr freely funded organizations providing law and order as compared to the current situation where a monopolist does this. The first point is, of course, if we have competition, then prices will generally fall and quality will increase. And I will detail that uh, in a second. And the second important point is there would be no such thing as an overproduction of security. All goods put all goods and services compete against each other. We have, there exists scarcity of resources. Whatever I sp spend more on police protection, uh, that implies that I can drink less beer. Um, whatever I spend on uh, paying judges, the, the implication is that I can uh, make less vacations or something like that. Every good competes with, every, every service competes with every other one. How much production of security do we need? How many resources do we need in order to produce security? 
The answer is, for the state, who is a monopolist, there is no clear-cut answer. Um, you know, how many resources should be committed to car production? How many resources should be committed to uh, butter production or milk production? Consumers decide that based on how important this product is as compared with that product. But consumers do not decide that currently how important security is. Um, the more money the government has, the more it can provide of this. But how much? Since consumers do not decide it, the more, the better. Um, do we need one policeman or 100,000 policemen? Does a policeman have to be paid $100 or $10,000? Um, do we need one tank or uh, a flamethrower on top of the tank? Do we need a personal bodyguard standing next to us with a, uh, with a pistol or a stick? Uh, do we need two of them? All of this is currently must be decided somehow too, but it's decided completely in a completely arbitrary way. It has nothing to do with consumers. Um, if there would be a free provision of these services, there would be no overproduction of security. People just get as much security as they think is appropriate in their particular case. And particular cases can be very different. Obviously, you need more in cities than you need in the countryside, um, and so forth. Not all people have the same desire to feel secure as far as their life and uh, property is, uh, is concerned. Now I come to more important points. Um, insurance companies are even currently in the business of protecting you. Um, they, um, you have contracts with insurance companies that say if such and such happens, we will indemnify you in such and such a way. Um, life insurance as yet, property insurance and so forth. Um, you realize that insurance companies would only be able to get money from you if they promise indemnification in case something happens. Do states indemnify you in any way if something happens to you? Uh, if somebody breaks into your house, kills you, and so forth, and the answer, no. States do not indemnify you if they fail in the task that they consider to be their main task, namely to protect your life and your property. Insurance companies must indemnify you. Insurance companies must also offer you a contract of what will happen provided such and such has occurred. Um, do we have anything like a contract currently with the government um, that such and such will be done if such and such has occurred? And the answer is again, no, we have no, we have no contract, contractual relationship whatsoever. Not only this, states in the course of the game even change the rules of the game. That is, they engage in legislation. Something that was considered to be a crime yesterday might no longer be a crime tomorrow. Something that was a crime yesterday um, and, and, vice, and vice versa. Imagine an insurance company would say, you see, we might in the course of 
the duration of the contract unilaterally change the rules of the game? Would anybody ever take out insurance with a company such as this? The answer would be that people say, you must be crazy. Of course, I want to have stipulated from the outset what will happen, and you cannot unilaterally say, no, no, yesterday we said such and such, but of course today we decided to do something else. Yesterday we said, I don't know, such and such will be the price, but today we decide, no, no, the price will be very different. Um, that very important point is this. If you sign a contract with an insurance company, we can imagine three possible scenarios. The first one is um, people who have conflicts with each other are insured by the same agency. Um, everybody knows that this is one possibility. I can have a conflict with somebody who is insured by the same insurer that I'm insured with. Obviously, the insurance company must, in their contract, offer stipulations what will happen in such a case. Um, there are laid out steps. If you complain against him, and you are both members of the same company, then these and these procedures will be set in motion. And both parties have agreed to this. They come to a conclusion. The conclusion will be enforced. They have agreed to this. Um, Second possibility is, I have a conflict with somebody else uh, who is insured by a different insurance agency. Again, everybody knows from the outset that this is also a possibility. So each individual insurance company has provision in its contracts, what will I do if one of my clients has a conflict with a client of a different company? If both companies come to the same conclusion, you are guilty or I am guilty, then again, there is no problem, it will be enforced. This is not fundamentally different from what the situation is right now. The most interesting case is this. Again, two people are insured with different companies, um, and uh, the two insurance companies do not agree. That is, one company says, this guy is guilty, and the other one says, this guy is guilty. Now again, everybody knows from the outset that this is also a possibility that can always happen. Accordingly, every company will of course have provisions. What will we do if such a case arises? I would not want to be insured with a company that has no provision for this contingency that can arise any time. What will they do in this situation? And the answer is, in this case, the only possibility that they have is to resort to independent arbitration and emphasizing independent. That is, the arbitration agency that must now decide which one of the clients of these two companies is right and which one is wrong must be independent of both companies. You realize that currently, when you appeal a decision, and go to a higher court, and not still higher court, and so forth, they are, of course, all part of the same organization. They are not independent of each other. What would now be the incentive of these independent arbitrators who offer arbitration services for these types of conflicts? Um, no arbitrator 
has any guarantee that he will be used again for the same purpose in the future. They must compete for clients. In this case, the insurance companies would be their clients. Um, and what they must do in order not to lose clients is come up with a decision that is viewed by both companies and by implication by all clients of both companies as a fair solution to the problem. Otherwise, one or the other company would lose clients and they would not choose this arbitrator in future cases. That is precisely because we have competition among arbitrators is the tendency set in motion to develop a law, uh, to develop law and legal procedures and so forth that uh, represent uh, the uh, uh, greatest possible agreement among all people to create something like a universally accepted law. You realize that even currently we do have something like this, or at least something similar to it. We do not have, for instance, a world government. Um, and citizens of different countries can have conflicts with each other without having one authority that covers them both. But there's a, a, Swiss, a Swiss person living uh, right across the border from some Austrian person. So they can have conflicts with each other. Uh, what does a Swiss person go? The Swiss person goes to the Swiss court. The Austrian person goes to the Austrian court. If they agree, it will be enforced. If they don't agree, they need to go even currently to some sort of arbitration. Um, that is, the world as a whole is still in a, in a state of anarchy, so to speak. Uh, we do not have a world government. We have competing governments, competing legal codes, and the relationships between Austrians and Swiss citizens living just across the border from each other is no more violent than the relationship of two Austrians living in two adjacent Austrian villages or two Swiss people living in two adjacent Swiss villages. This alone shows already that the idea that we need to have one monopoly decider is false. It is borne out by the fact of international anarchy, so to speak, that the system, like the one that I described, can indeed function. Well, there's certainly food for thought there. Whether or not you necessarily agree with all the points of that, I think there's definitely something, a debate to be had, and one that we will, I think, continue to have on this podcast in the future in various ways. But, uh, but there you go. It's a very intriguing idea for a society. Well, again, there's very, very, very much more to be said on this topic, and a lot of different nooks and crannies and, and other places to explore with this topic, but at the very least, I hope we've gone through a little bit of what natural law theory is and opened up some of the doorways for you to begin doing your own research on it. 
at any rate, it certainly does seem to be the basis for a lot of the the strain of liber- libertarian and uh, liberty-minded thought in American history through the, uh, the legacy of Locke and coming through Jefferson and some of the other founding fathers. So it's a very important, I think, strain of the philosophy of freedom. But uh, we'll leave it there for now. But rest assured, we'll be coming back to revisit many of these different topics that have been broached in today's episode in more detail further on in this podcast. So that's it for today. I am your host, James Corbett, asking you to join me again next week for another edition of The Corbett Report.